Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. It's good to be back. Even though we're doing the show from uh, my office and we're interviewing from afar, we have a very special guest today, an old friend and colleague of mine, not that we're so old, Dr. Yossi Unterstadt, who is a specialist obstetrician and gynecologist, but devotes himself to fertility. He works at Vitalab, and I'm sure there are many other accolades which I've left out and we haven't mentioned. Thank you, Yossi, for joining us today. Thanks, Dean. Thank you. It's a great opportunity. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Good. Before we start, did you know that you can make a difference during the COVID-19 pandemic with this game? Your Dischem benefits points can now go towards supporting the Bended Solidarity Fund set up by the President. Dischem is matching rand for rand all points in point donations and will kickstart it with an upfront 2 million rand. Money's raised will go towards saving lives and assisting people in need. Donate now by converting your points via the Dischem app or the website. Together we are stronger. Together we can overcome the pandemic. Dischem pharmacists to care. Yossi, thanks so much for joining us again. So okay if I call you Yossi on air. Please call me Yossi. My patients don't know me as any other name. Me too. Yeah. I also hate, I also hate, and if they insist on calling doctor, I say Dr. Dean. I hate, uh, yeah. I hate titles, but they call me Dean. Yeah, okay, well, it's good to have you on the show. Good someone that can, uh, uh, chat and schmooze about something that's, uh, often a very sensitive topic. People often don't want to come, uh, forward about it. Often people don't want to investigate it, but it's an, a reality of life. And, um, I think it's a great thing that we, or alive in this time and age because there's so much that can be done about infertility. Absolutely, Dean. You know, you're 100% correct when you say it's it's a common problem. One in six, one in seven couples will struggle with some form of um, fertility. And um, so the problem is very rife. And uh, the more we talk about it, the more um, comfortable we make it for people to to come forward with the issues because there really is no reason to suffer in silence in 2020. We are incredibly privileged with the advances in technology over the past few years. Uh, the oldest IVF baby in the world is 40 years old. And um, the fact that uh, the first IVF baby is 40 years old and we're now only 40 years into this industry, the advances that we've seen in the past 40 years have been incredible. So there really is a solution for most problems and there should not be any stigma and we should have, we should be talking about this really openly. That's an amazing thing and I think that's why, um, that's why I've got you on. Hopefully, you know, people who are having problems are too scared to uh, come out with it, to speak about it, to find out about it. I'm sure they do lots of uh, Googling at home, which can be a good or a bad thing. Yeah. And uh, hopefully uh, this will inspire them to contact and to do something. Okay, so can you speak very briefly, how would you define infertility? All right, so the diagnosis of infertility is pretty simple. We say a woman under the age of 35 
should um, try and conceive for a year. And if there is no conception within 12 months of regular unprotected intercourse, um, that would be considered infertility. We change the definition slightly for women over the age of 35, where we say a woman over... This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Dischem Medical 101.95 FM. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, and we are speaking to Dr. Yossi Unterslag, obstetrician gynecologist and reproductive medicine specialist or fertility specialist. So we had in a brief uh, ending there, we are doing the interview over Skype and we lost Yossi. Yossi, you were just explaining to us uh, what is infertility. Uh, when Apologies we just lost you, for so that, Dean. We're uh, in 2020 and we can, I'm just telling you how we've got solutions for so many fertility problems, but okay, uh, we have problems. connectivity issues <laughs> with our internet. So apologies for that. So yeah, so, so, so just briefly to say the definition would be um, a woman under the age of 35 who has regular unprotected intercourse and doesn't conceive and a woman under the age of 35 irregular unprotected intercourse for six months and doesn't conceive. Sorry, what um, was the, the reason why we differentiate... Did, did you give a time limit for the under 35... I'd yes, under honest. 35 for a year, a year a of year. regular unprotected okay. intercourse and doesn't conceive, and a woman over 35, we would say six months. Six months. And the and reason for the difference yeah. between under 35 and over 35 is that um, the most significant factor when we look at um, female fertility is definitely the female age. And the older the female's eggs are, um, the less prone they are to result in a conception. And so in a woman over the age of 35, the reason we say not to try for more than six months is because things do become pretty time sensitive um, over the age of 35, specifically if we're dealing with the pathology related to um, the female's air quality. This is a problem that does worsen over time. And so the sooner we can get in and sort the problem out, um, the better prognosis. So that's why we tell women over 35 not to try for more than six months. And then just to, um, just for both groups, obviously we say these are in the presence of regular cycles um, and cycles that are not significantly painful or very heavy periods. And if a woman does have any of these symptoms, so either very painful periods, very heavy periods, or um, there's a long duration between her cycles, specifically more than 35 days, that woman should start to investigate sooner so that we can get to the root of the problem and sort it out quicker. Can you tell me exactly what happens to to the eggs at this age? Maybe, I don't know, we can touch on advanced fraternal age as well, but what happens, you said over 35, there's less chance of the eggs being ready to conceive or to okay, so, accept so, them. I always tell my patients there's a fundamental difference reproductively between men and women. When a woman is in her mother's uterus, she's assigned a number of eggs for her lifetime. So she's born with these eggs. Um, the eggs will age with her and they will run out at some point in her life, at which point she will go into menopause and be no longer fertile. A man, when he's, when he is in his mother's uterus, he has this factory built in his testicles and the factory contains stem cells, which is able to produce new sperm, 
from the day of puberty until the day that a man dies. So a man will become infertile when his ability to deliver the sperm to the egg goes away. And that would be with either ejaculatory or uh, erectile dysfunction. But we can take a man in his 70s, we can retrieve testicular sperm and achieve a pregnancy pretty much like we can when he's in his 30s and 40s. Whereas the woman, from puberty till the day that her eggs run out, those eggs reduce significantly. So somewhere between a 1,000 and 100,000 a month, we, uh, a woman can lose that many eggs per month, but also the eggs age, and the eggs are very sensitive to aging. And as the egg ages, its ability to be fertilized and then to create a, uh, an embryo which has a normal number of chromosomes reduces. And so that's why it's more common with older eggs to have pregnancies that have chromosomal abnormalities. And we know that conditions like Down syndrome are more common in older women, and that is because the ability of the egg to divide into one cell, into two cells, into four cells, into eight cells starts to malfunction, and it creates an abnormal number of chromosomes in the pregnancy, which either results in an embryo that cannot implant in the uterus or an embryo that implants and then is rejected by the uterus, which results in a miscarriage. Okay, so now uh, maybe while we're on the subject, what can be done for women of this increase in age if they either are struggling to fall pregnant or they haven't found the right partner yet or they want to maybe uh, go ahead by themselves? Okay, I know you can uh, freeze eggs or, or store your eggs. What age would you advise doing that and how does it help? So that's it's a, it's a really good question and the reality is that we cannot do anything about egg aging. So we can't slow this process down, but what we can do is put this process on ice. So we can take eggs out of a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 35-year-old, a 40-year-old, and whatever whatever age they happen to be, we can retrieve eggs from the ovary, we can freeze them, and then the day that we thaw those eggs, be it one year later or five years later or seven years later, they have the same age that they had the day that we froze them. And so, so the you, literally do put the, you literally do put them on us. Exactly. So we don't quite put them on ice. We put them in liquid nitrogen, which works a hell of a lot better. It uh, yeah. keeps them at a much lower temperature. But you can essentially put the fertility on ice. Now, the, the big question is when should a woman do this? And the, the, the short answer is the earlier the better, without a doubt. But we know that it's human psyche to say, oh, I'm going to give it one more year. And if I'm not pregnant in one more year or if I haven't found the right kind of year, then I'll do it then. And then a year passes, you know what, I think I'm close, I'm going to give it one more year. And unfortunately, the reality is that each of those passing years reduces the potential of those eggs. So the the unfortunate thing is that it's not a cheap process. And so for most women, it it, um, it is deferred for financial reasons. But the reality is that the sooner that this process is done, the younger the eggs are when they're frozen, the better the prognosis is from those frozen eggs. So certainly under the age of 35, it should be done. Um, but even from 30, it would be recommended. It's not to say that at 37, it's too late. Because whatever eggs we freeze at 37 are better than 38 or 39 or 40-year-old eggs. So there isn't really a point where it's too late unless there are no eggs left in the ovaries. 
but the sooner it's done, the better. And the technology has improved significantly over the past few years where we used to freeze eggs, but it was almost like putting an empty money bag in the bank and believing that we were rich. But then when we went and thawed those eggs five years later, the utilization from those eggs was really not good. But the technology in how we freeze those eggs has improved significantly. So the utilization from frozen eggs has really, really improved. So as that technology improves, we're encouraging women more and more to, to take this up and to freeze their eggs. Okay, we're going to take another short ad break and then we come back, we can maybe st- uh, talk about who should be freezing their eggs. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson, who's speaking to Dr. Yossi Unterslack who is a specialist obstetrician and gynecologist and works in reproductive and fertility medicine. And we're speaking about freezing eggs. And uh, Dr. Yossi, what about women who are going to unfortunately have chemotherapy or, or have medication and that might affect their eggs? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, Tim. And um, unfortunately makes up quite a bit of our work these days um, where – we are seeing um, young women who are diagnosed with cancers, be it breast cancer, sometimes ovarian cancer, different bone marrow malignancies. And the, the, the great thing about um, cancer treatment is that the survival of these patients has really improved dramatically over the past few years. But what is not good about the chemo is that it's really toxic to the ovaries. And so although the woman survives her, her, her cancer, um, when she decides to have a family one day, unfortunately, most of the time she'll be rendered in um, menopause from the chemotherapy and then her chances of conceiving, um, you know, with her own eggs goes with that. So a lot of our work, unfortunately, is what we call oncofertility, so cancer preservation. And um, this is encouraged for both men and women who are going to undergo chemotherapy, men to freeze their sperm and women to freeze their eggs. And... Um, we know that there's really excellent literature, literature out there today that the two weeks that we need to put the cancer tr- treatment on pause while we freeze the eggs does not change the long-term survival of the cancer patient. So we, we do have that gap where from diagnosis to starting chemotherapy to try and get at least one cycle of egg freezing done for 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 patients who are going to have chemotherapy so that they can conceive um, with with their eggs that um, that they froze pre-chemo. And I've currently got a patient who um, is pregnant with eggs frozen before the female had chemotherapy and sperm frozen before the male had chemotherapy. And now they're both um, – the man has no sperm, unfortunately. The woman, the chemotherapy has put her in menopause. But thankfully, they've got a baby – which um, is conceived from eggs and sperm that were frozen before the chemotherapy. So really a great success story from an oncofertility point of view and um, something that we we are encouraging the physicians to to send their patients for because often they will wait until they're already on chemotherapy and then hear about this when they're sitting in the waiting room from other girls who are having chemo. And unfortunately, once the chemotherapy has started, it's often too late. So really from... From the diagnosis, as soon as that biopsy is done, they should be referred for for oncofertility preservation. Okay, great. Let's go back now to uh, younger patients, uh, below young people below the age of 
35. What needs to happen normally? Uh, what needs to take place and what um, cycles need to be in place uh, for normal pregnancy to happen? And what are the most common things that you see uh, that uh, go wrong or don't happen that cause infertility? Okay. All right. So, so I always tell patients we approach fertility on like kind of a three-sphere approach. So we need eggs. So we need the woman to be ovulating and to be ovulating with a regular, with a, with a regular cycle. So a cycle that's less than 35 days that generally has some reliability to it. It doesn't have to be exactly 28 days every month. It can be 27 this month, 31 next month, 30 the next month, 28. But as long as there's some reliability to that cycle, that's an excellent predictor of ovulation. So we need an egg to be released by the ovary and we need that egg that's released to be of good quality. We then need sperm. We need the sperm to be of good enough quality to make its way all the way from the vagina, through the cervix, through the uterus, into the fallopian tube and meet the egg inside the fallopian tube. Which brings me to the third factor, which is we need a normal, healthy uterus with patent fallopian tubes. So essentially what will happen every month is that a woman will ovulate, and ovulation usually will happen 14 days prior to the onset of the next menses. So that's the best way to kind of work out when ovulation is going to take place. So that egg will be released by the ovary, and the egg will then be caught by the fallopian tube. It then sits inside the fallopian tube, which are these two long structures which sit on the side of the uterus, and the egg sits and it waits for the sperm in the fallopian tube. The sperm will then travel through the cervix, through the uterus, into the fallopian tube, and that's where fertilization will take place. And for the first five to six days of the embryo's life, it will be inside the fallopian tube, slowly making its way towards the uterus. And about the sixth or seventh day of conception, the embryo will then enter the uterus and it needs to implant in a nice, healthy uterus. So you can see there's many factors along the way which will determine whether a pregnancy takes place or not. Now, the most important factor is the quality of the egg. Um, And unfortunately, it's a huge misconception out there that as a species, humans are pretty fertile, and if a woman ovulates, intercourse is found appropriately with ovulation conception. You remember when we spoke about the, di- the definition of, of infertility, we said a woman under 35 should try for 12 months consecutively before she says there's a problem with her fertility. And the reason for that is that not every egg that the ovary releases has the potential to result in a pregnancy. And it can take 10 to 12 eggs to have one that's capable of con- that's of giving a healthy conception. So the biggest determinant is the quality of the egg, and that's where most of our patients present with either problems with the egg quality or ovulation dysfunction, where for some or other reason they just don't ovulate. Yet that... Um, They've got too many eggs in the ovaries, whether they've got a problem in the brain, which is the stimulus for ovulation. There's many areas where the ovulation dysfunction can come from. And that's certainly the most common problem that we see in our patients under 35, ovulation dysfunction. And probably the second most common um, pathology that we see in our patients is a condition called endometriosis. And endometriosis is essentially where tissue that lines the inside of the uterus 
for some or other reason sits outside the uterus, so in the ovaries on the fallopian tubes, and this causes um, a, a pretty hostile environment in the uterus and the fallopian tubes, and it affects air quality and it affects the ability for the eggs to fertilize and result in a healthy conception. And then we must not forget the, the role that the male plays Infertility. So about a third of our patients have a purely male factor infertility where either there is not enough sperm, if there is enough sperm, the sperm shapes are abnormal, or the motility and the ability of the sperm to move hard and fast and forward is reduced significantly. And those are pretty much the most common areas where we find pathology in our young patients. Ovulation dysfunction, endometriosis, and sperm factors. Okay, so when a couple come to see you, what's the, obviously you take a history and you examine it and do an examination. What's the investigation like? How do you determine what's, what the problem is? Okay, so a basic ultrasound examination of the uterus is very important. Um, and we can tell a hell of a lot from the uterus and from the ovaries. A, we can look at the uterus and see that there's no pathology in the uterus per se. But most importantly, we look at the ovaries. And when we look at the ovaries, we are able to judge just by doing an ultrasound of the ovaries kind of whether the woman's chronological age and her fertility age matter. Because unfortunately, we have conditions which cause a woman to have this accelerated fertility age. Although she may be 30 or 31 chronologically, her fertility has aged quicker. So her eggs, her egg quality, her egg number is further along. 35, sometimes 40. And by looking at the ovaries and doing a really good detailed ultrasound, we're able to kind of predict what is the chronological and fertility age of this woman and are they matching up. And then the next um, um, examination that we would do is an X-ray of the fallopian tubes. This is called a hysterosalpingogram where we inject a little bit of dye into the uterus. The dye will run through the uterus and through the fallopian tubes, and we take an X-ray, and that allows us to confirm that the female tract is patent, that from the cervix to the end of the fallopian tubes is patent, that the sperm can get all the way through. And then, of course, we need to screen the male. Now, there's many different ways to screen a male. Um, there's the formal semen analysis, which is where a guy will go into the, the naughty corner with a little cap and come out and give us a sperm sample and we will look at the sperm sample and test his sperm. Um, there are other ways to do this. It can be done using a condom at home with intercourse for couples who are uncomfortable with masturbation or for religious reasons where masturbation is a problem. And then there are also some other crude tests that can be done, specifically one called a postcoital test where around ovulation a couple will have intercourse at home and then come into the clinic and we do a procedure which is very much like a pap smear where we take a little bit of the cervical mucus and we look at it under the microscope and we're able to examine the sperm and see that there are enough sperm, that the shapes are normal and that they're moving appropriately. So this is kind of the, the, the baseline um, where we would start. And then there's obviously certain blood tests which we need to look for. But all of these are, need to be tailored to the specific pathology that you think this couple may have. So there's no place in fertility medicine for a one-size-fits-all where you tick one box on the blood form and do a million blood tests for a patient. You really need to tailor your investigations depending on what you find in your examination. Excellent. Okay. Um, so let's maybe go to interventions, maybe from the most simple to the most complicated. Okay. So 
like I said, our most common problem that we see will be ovulation dysfunction. So these are women who either don't ovulate at all or they do ovulate, but very, very late in their cycle. So these are the girls who come and say, you know, I get a period every 60 days, every 90 days. Um, and that's, um, that straight away points to an ovulation dysfunction. Now the treatment is obviously tailored to where the pathology is. Um, we need to first have a good look at the uterus and make sure, at the ovaries and make sure that this is not a problem of too few eggs because too few eggs is a huge problem and it's treated completely differently to having too many eggs in the ovaries. Now too many eggs in the ovaries um, is um, what we often see in a very common condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome, which we can discuss a little bit, um, which is treated with simple ovulation induction. So we give certain drugs which encourage ovulation, and we ensure that instead of having 90-day cycles, the cycle will shorten to 28 days, and so that in the three months that they would have been trying to feel pregnant but having not really had a chance to conceive in those three months because no egg was released, we can bring that down to three ovulations in the three months. And usually in those first three to four months, this couple will conceive. So ovulation induction is the the, the kind of um, most common thing that we see amongst our patients because ovulation dysfunction is the most common thing that we see amongst our patients. So the, the most common presentation in females is managed usually with ovulation induction. And I think it's important to point that out because people will often think that if I walk into a fertility clinic, it means I'm going to have IVF. And that's not the case. If we look at our pregnancies per month, the majority of pregnancies are conceived without IVF, with simple ovulation induction or simple artificial insemination where there's a mild male factor. And a lot of cases can be treated without IVF. And a fertility clinic and having to visit a fertility clinic doesn't mean that you need to have IVF. And I think that is really, really important. As a matter of fact, I saw a couple not long ago who were pregnant and leaving the clinic to go and see their obstetrician. And they said to me, when can we tell people that we're pregnant? And I said, no, there's no real rules about it. And we discussed and I said, what's, what's the rush? Why do you want to tell people? They said, because we want people to know that you don't need to have IVF if you go to a fertility clinic. They conceived with ovulation induction and they kind of wanted to be able to publicize this to their friends to take this paranoia and stigma away from, um, fertility equals, infertility equals IVF. So, so, you know, the most common treatment we'll do is ovulation induction for, for the most common presentation, which is ovulation dysfunction. Um, and then from the male side where there is a mild male factor where the sperm is not great um, but not um, terrible, we can achieve a pregnancy by doing artificial insemination. So essentially what that means is, like I said, the sperm has a long journey to travel. It needs to go from the vagina where it's deposited through a pretty thick cervical mucus through the uterus and into the fallopian tube and fertilize the egg. And that's a long journey. Um, and although only one sperm is required to fertilize one egg, it, if we took one sperm and one egg and we put them next to, next to each other in the laboratory, fertilization will not take place because you need a high concentration of sperm to get to the egg because the sperm give off an enzyme which softens the shell of the egg and allows the sperm to penetrate it. So in order to achieve a high concentration of sperm reaching the egg, what we do is we take a sperm sample and we concentrate it down to the best of the best sperm and we put a very thin plastic tube into the uterus and we inject the sperm high up in the uterus close to the egg and um, 
we basically shorten the journey. I always tell my patients it's like running the Comrades Marathon but only starting at Poly Shorts. Much shorter journey, you get to the finish line with a lot more energy and you can get the job done. And that's how we would treat a mild malfactor. So obviously the bigger pathologies do require IVF, etc., and we can discuss that, but those are basically our the mainstay treatment for the for the common problems that we see. Okay, amazing. So we're gonna go I guess uh, a lot of people do equate infertility with IVF and uh, thank you for telling us that just because you go to a fertility clinic doesn't mean that you need IVF. So maybe we're going to take an ad break in two, three minutes, but maybe you can just give us a definition or tell us briefly what IVF is and then we'll take the ad break. Sure. Okay, so IVF stands for in vitro fertilization. And essentially that means fertilization outside of the human body. And so what we do with IVF is instead of a woman releasing one egg from her ovary each month, which is the way the ovaries are programmed, we can kind of bypass that programming and extract many eggs from the ovaries in a month. So we give the woman certain injections for 10, 10 days to two weeks. During that process, we monitor the egg growth. And when the eggs are mature, we will extract them from the ovaries and we will put them in the laboratory and we will then fertilize the eggs in the laboratory with different kinds of fertilization techniques. I, either we can put the eggs in a dish with the sperm and we can close the incubator overnight, big party happens overnight and we open the incubator the next morning and the eggs are fertilized. Or in the case where there is a severe male factor and we are really worried about the sperm's ability to fertilize the egg, we can then take the eggs, let's say we extract 10 eggs from the ovary, and we can select the 10 best sperm from the ejaculate, and we can do a tiny surgical procedure on the eggs where we inject one sperm into each egg, and we can assist the fertilization process in the laboratory. And then we then look after these growing embryos for five days. So we do the first five days of babysitting in our lab, and we watch these embryos grow, and we watch that they are reaching the milestones that need to be reached. And when the embryo is five days old, we will select the best one or the best two embryos, and we will transfer them back into the uterus and then freeze the remaining embryos for future attempts or future children. And that's really IVF in a nutshell, and we can go, go into detail okay. if you'd like off. Perfect. Let's take a short ad break and then we'll go into more detail about IVF. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Dr. Yossi Gunterslag, specialist obstetrician and gynecologist working at Vitalab. Do you call yourself a fertility specialist or what's your preferred title? I'm a, I do fertility specialty work, but I'm a gynecologist. Um, okay. and I, I see a gynecological problems, but, um, but, uh, I call myself uh, a fertility specialist. Um, if you look into, yeah. Okay. All right. So we're busy talking about, uh, IVF and we've spoken about how you, uh, extract uh, sperm and you extract eggs. You put them together. You have the party and the petri dish. Is it a petri dish or I don't know. What it is, the dish, test tube, okay? And, uh, okay, how, you said you select the best ones. How do you tell what, which are the best? So, so, so the first trick is that sperm are really, really quick. And if you look under the microscope at a sample of, of sperm, um, they are buzzing around in there and it makes it incredibly difficult to catch them, never mind 
be able to analyze them. So there's certain techniques we do in the laboratory to eliminate the, the, the poorer quality sperm and be left with a sample of the better sperm. And we essentially spin it in a centrifuge under certain gradients and the denser the sperm is goes to the bottom of the tube and we can select the best sperm that way. Um, but then what we do is we kind of put the sperm in an agar or a jelly, which kind of slows the sperm down and that allows us to catch them. They need to be caught tail first into the needle so that they enter the egg head first, which is the way that uh, it would happen naturally. Um, and yeah, we've got really, really skilled embryologists who work in our lab who, um, who are able to A, catch a sperm, which is a challenge on its own, and then perform this incredible technique, which is um, using a needle 14 times thinner than a human hair at the tip. And they take this needle and they plunge it into the egg and they then inject the sperm into the egg. And this all has to be done without damaging any of the critical parts of the egg. Because uh, if you perform the ICSI but you damage the egg, you get nothing out of that egg in the end of the day. So really, really skilled, skilled scientists perform these procedures. Okay, so you and then you said you that you wait for the embryos to grow five to ten days. Well, it was a five to eight days. Um, five, days. five days. Five days. And and how many cells? How many cells of the embryo should the embryos be at five days? All right. So, and what? Yes. So an embryo goes through different phases in the five days that it's in the laboratory. The first thing we want to see is that it fertilizes normally. The second thing we want to see is that it undergoes what we call cleavage. Cleavage means that the sperm, the, the sperm and the egg make it an entirely unique organism, a cell with DNA that's never been in this universe before. And then that egg has to divide into two identical cells. It then will then, each of those Cells will divide into identical cells, and that replication will go on and on and on. By the time an embryo reaches day five, it's what we call a blastocyst. And now it's starting to take some shape where we can see the difference between the part of the embryo that will become the baby, which is called the inner cell mass, and the part of the embryo which will become the placenta, which is the trophectoderm. And once we, it reaches that point, it then has the best chance of implanting. Now, that's one of the things that has changed significantly in IVF, whereas in the early days, we didn't have the ability to culture embryos for five days. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Just get medical Monday. Sorry about that. Having a bit of an internet problems, Doctor Yossi, are we back with you? Speaking about technology, where we can inject a sperm with a needle fourteen times thinner than human hair, but and then the internet goes again. Exactly. <laughs> but okay, so you, you were saying though that you used to uh, you used to connect. So, yeah, so next, we used to. I mean, you used to, to put it in the next day. Yeah. Correct, day two or day three, and, 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 and the advances in the laboratory have allowed us to culture embryos for, for so much longer, up to day five. And essentially, when we watch an embryo grow for five days, it shows us during those five days if it has the potential to yield a healthy pregnancy or not. So whereas um, previously we would put an embryo back just because it had cleaved or it, it uh, divided into six or eight cells, um, but... Uh, then on the fourth day it would have arrested and not yielded a healthy embryo. So um, now that we can watch them till day five, even day six, sometimes up to day seven, we we are able to predict far better whether that embryo will yield a, a healthy pregnancy. And, and really, this is these kind of advances in the lab are um, are improving pregnancy rates from you know the the low twenties. 
15 years ago up to pregnancy rates of 60-65% per cycle where they are today. Okay. What about uh, families with genetic diseases? They have certain, they carry, both parents are certain carriers or they have a dominant disease that they're worried about. How can IVF assist uh, with these genetic diseases so that you have a child that's born free from the disease? Right, that's a, it's a really, really good question and it's kind of like a whole show on its own, but let's touch on it because, um, it's becoming more and more common in our practice and essentially we know that specifically as Ashkenazi Jews, we carry these recessive genes and if two couples carry a recessive gene for a disease, then when they marry and have children, each conception has a 25% chance of being born with, um, with this disease and these some of the diseases are really really severe things like Tay-Sachs and so what we can do today is we can do IVF in other words we can stimulate the ovaries and retrieve many eggs fertilize them in the laboratory and grow them for five days and just before they are frozen these embryos on day five or day six we are able to biopsy the embryos so as you would if you had a growth on your face or whatever it is, we take a tiny needle and we remove two or three cells from the embryo and then we freeze the embryo. We can then send these cells off to a lab who can analyze the cells to see if the embryo is affected by the disease or not. And if the embryo is unaffected by the disease, we can then go and thaw the embryo from the freezer, transfer it in the uterus, and then this couple can achieve a pregnancy where they don't have to worry about the child being born with a genetic disease. Um, and then sometimes the embryo will come back and say it's affected, and so we know we don't use that embryo. Sometimes they're just carriers, and we can transfer carriers. Um, so really has changed um, the way these couples have, have children. I mean, it, not, not many years ago what would happen is they would try and conceive, um, and fall pregnant, they would do an amniocentesis, so at about 16 weeks of pregnancy, they would um, take a little bit of water around the baby, test to see if the baby was affected by the disease, and then they would have a very difficult decision about continuing with the pregnancy or terminating the pregnancy, and now we are able to determine this when the embryo is five days old before we even put it in the uterus so that um, this couple can get a positive pregnancy test knowing that the baby in the uterus is unaffected with the genetic disease, which is really incredible. That's technology. unbelievable. Yeah, and I mean, that's also besides the risk of the amniocentesis and and miscarriage. I guess this is, must be a lot safer. Exactly, hundred percent. So amniocentesis carries almost one to two percent risk of miscarriage, and then obviously the all the ramifications that come along with having to to terminate a, a, a fifteen sixteen week pregnancy, the emotional burden on the yeah, couple, the, trauma, yeah. the religious obligation, the religious considerations, ethical considerations. So it takes all of that out of the equation, which is really a a, a huge huge thing for these couples. What about gender? I'm sure a lot of people ask you, we want to have two boys or we want to have one boy and one girl. I'm sure you are able to see from, I mean, if you can see the most minute um, genetic disease, it must be easier or um, easier to see whether they are uh, boys or girls. What are the ethical problems with this or the law, the legal problems with this? So the law is very simple in South Africa. The law forbids genetic testing for sex selection unless there is a sex-linked disease that the family are trying to, to eliminate. So certain diseases have a predominance in the male or the female sex line. So in those cases, we can sex select. But other than that, there is no legal 
um, space for social sex selection. So, yes, the genetic testing will reveal the sex of the embryo, but we are not allowed to select our embryos based on the sex, and a couple is not allowed to undergo IVF just in order to select a certain sex for the for the for the pregnancy. So the law is very clear in South Africa. It's forbidden, and it shouldn't be done. I know that a lot of people previously people went for IVF. Sometimes they have two, three children. You'd know that if they had triplets or quadruplets. You know, they, these were fertility babies. Is uh, do you ever put more than one embryo back, and why or why not? Okay, so so the reason for that is that um, when when we do an embryo transfer and we we look at an embryo down the microscope, we we grade it and we give the embryo a kind of potential whether this embryo will give us a pregnancy or not. Now, in the old days, a we had very poor freezing technology, so we had a bunch of a bunch of embryos in the laboratory, of which we had to choose one or two, and we had to hope that we chose the one or the two embryos that would result in a pregnancy because we knew that the other embryos that we were going to freeze, we had very poor utilization from those embryos. So often, what we would do is then put a high number of embryos back in the uterus in the hope that at least one of those embryos will. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We are speaking to Dr. Yossi Unterstark, gynecologist, works at Vata Lab. Last question and wrap up, Yossi. Sorry, we've got so much to talk about. We're going to have to do another show. Why is IVF so expensive? I mean, you can see the process and it goes to the laboratory and you've got so many people that have been working on it and you've got freezing and you've got processes and you've got implanting. What is the main cost? So, so really, Dean, the main cost is A, the, the consumables that we use in the laboratory. So, you know, we spoke about being able to grow an embryo in the laboratory for five days and that embryo grows in a media and the media essentially feeds that embryo for five days in the laboratory. So the media costs money. The tips of the pipettes that we use in the laboratory, the dishes are very specifically designed um, to 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 be able to culture embryos. The incubators, the upkeep of the laboratory, and the reality is that if you if you work in a world class laboratory, nothing stays the same for a year or two. You need to constantly upgrade your laboratory. And by upgrading your laboratory, obviously those costs translate, unfortunately, into the IVF. But the reality is that as the costs have increased um, in certain clinics, the pregnancy rates have increased dramatically. And so, um, yes, the cost of the IVF has gone up. But pre- previously where you paid much less but did three or four IVFs to achieve a pregnancy today – you do one IVF, you get pregnant, and you have embryos in the freezer so that the next time you need to fall pregnant or choose to fall pregnant, the cost is much cheaper to just do an embryo transfer and thaw that embryo and transfer it into the uterus. Now, if you cut costs on that process using less drugs, freezing less embryos, etc., in the long run, the cost translates to the patient. So if you have one cycle worth um X, which gives you a 20% success rate, or one cycle, which is X times 2, which gives you a 60% success rate, plus embryos in the freezer, you obviously want to rather go for the cycle, which may be slightly more expensive, but will give you far better outcomes. So 
if you're a lab that really pays attention to the technology and the advances in the technology and you are upgrading your lab constantly, unfortunately, this does translate into the costs. But it also translates into the success rates, and I think that's the key. You know, there are certain clinics who do a low-cost IVF where you pay much less, um, but unfortunately with low-cost comes low success rates. And so um, you land up doing many more cycles to achieve the same outcome in the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So okay. very well-trained scientists, yes. good, good, good technology, etc. Okay. Dr. Yossi, how can people get hold of you or Vitalab if they want to see you? Right, so um, www.vitalab.co.za, V-I-T-A-L-A-B, sorry, .com, www.vitalab.com, V-I-T-A-L-A-B.com, um, and you can make appointments through the website. And I think the biggest thing is that there is should not be any stigma, and if you are struggling, rather come and get a big tick next to your name that there's nothing wrong, go home and keep trying, but don't struggle too long and unfortunately then come too late when the problems are much bigger. Thank you, Dr. Yossi Unterslack. It's been an amazing uh, past hour. I'm sure our listeners enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed it, and please go to another show soon. Thank you for your time. Thank you to listeners. Thank you to everyone who helped make the, the producers and engineers who made the show work today from our remote stations. And we'll please go see you next week, 101.95 FM. I'm Dean Gerson. Thank you for joining us.